it was about, it's a little over two years ago now. And uh, it was back uh, when we were all working from home. And uh, every family was a homeschool family. It was uh, the first part of the lockdown, and many of us didn't really know what to expect um, from the pandemic. And leaders of all kinds were trying to figure out how to lead in their context and their organizations. And pastors all over the country were trying to figure out, well, how do we do church when we can't gather as a church? And it was in the middle of that context that uh, Pastor Tim Keller hosted a webinar. And, And if you don't know who Tim Keller is, he was a pastor in New York City around 30 years. And in this webinar, he, he told all of us who were part of it that back right after 9-11, his church became exponentially more busy as uh, New Yorkers uh, were gripped by deep questions and deep hurts that thousands upon thousands of New Yorkers were inspired to, to go to church, and his church grew uh, exponentially during that time. And he said shortly after that, a pastor from Oklahoma City gave him a call, uh, and this pastor had experienced something very similar in 1995 after the Oklahoma City bombings, that his church became exponentially more busy as people were gripped by deep questions and deep hurts and and they were inspired to go to church and his staff was very grateful for the opportunity to be a source of hope and healing for folks. But he said after about two years, he noticed significant fatigue really began to set in on his staff. And he said to Tim Keller, you need to be on the lookout for this with your staff as well. And Tim Keller told us in that webinar, he said, We experienced the exact same thing. It wasn't two years for us. It really showed up around year five. But be prepared for severe staff fatigue. And since I was a part of that uh, webinar, I've thought about it, if not every day, I've thought about it every single week. And as much wisdom as there is in it, I think many are beginning to realize that something is missing. It's not just church staffs who are feeling fatigue. It's entire churches, it's, it's congregations. As many churches over the past couple of years have had to navigate what has felt like unrelenting challenges and changes and, and pressures. Uh, not, uh, not too long ago, about a month ago, uh, a number of the staff, we went to a conference and we were in a room with thousands of other pastors and church staff and they're all telling the exact same story. I just like, kind of our church is, is tired. Uh, And our church went through all of this right on the heels of going through a transition of a beloved senior pastor who was here for 30 years to the next guy, right? And so it would be weird if either individually or collectively, if some of us wouldn't say, man, it just could use a break and feel just a little tired, feel some fatigue. And like cool rain at the end of a long, hot, dry day. Some of us might say it'd be nice to get a little comfort, a little renewal, and that's a good thing, and that's a needed thing. As I want to share with you what's been on my heart and my mind recently. It's Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Today, we're kicking off a new summer series that's really all about hope and restoration and, and comfort and encouragement. This is something that we want to do collectively. We invite you to really lean in individually as we look up to the source of our hope and comfort and joy and life. And this is gonna be the constant drumbeat of refreshment and encouragement. When you are, however you fill in the blank, look up. When you are up or down, when you're confident, when you're anxious, when you're high or low, when you are sad, when you are discouraged, whatever you may be, look up. And we're going to look up by 
looking back. I'm curious, where are my fans of the Old Testament? Anybody in here love the Old Testament? Is there anybody here, you couldn't be happier than if I pulled out a flannel graph right now and we just jumped into some cherished passages and stories? All right, you're gonna love this series and I cannot promise you that there's gonna be a flannel graph and if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it. But if you love the Old Testament, you're gonna love this. I feel like this is a point that I gotta be honest. Some of us, when we read the Old Testament, our hearts aren't warmed. Some people, when they read the Old Testament, wince. And some people, when you read the Old Testament, they recoil. And if I'm talking to you right now, I just wanna invite you to stay engaged with us throughout this series because I think it's at least possible that you're gonna see the Old Testament in a new light, maybe in a way you've never seen before. And a promise that I can make for everyone is that there is real, deep, restorative comfort. And we're going to look back by going to what is present-day Israel, but we're going to go back to the point in history that is chronicled by the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. And at this point in history, Israel is divided into two kingdoms by a civil war. You've got the kingdom of Judah to the south and the kingdom of Israel to the north. And the king of Israel is a man named King Ahab. Every leader has a bad reputation with somebody, but his reputation was especially Severe, he is remembered as the worst, the most wicked king that Israel ever had. And he married a woman named Jezebel, and Queen Jezebel is from this area, kind of right up here, what is modern day Beirut. She's not from the covenant community. She is not a fully devoted follower of God. As a matter of fact, she is a fully devoted idol worshiper. And Ahab and Jezebel set up a temple to, the, to Baal, and they set up uh, worship centers for Asherah. And their kind of commitment to this was not only nationally endorsed, but idol worship of Baal and Asherah was expected and highly encouraged. And if you're not familiar uh, with your Baal and Asherah theology, I don't know, are you guys up to speed on your Baal and Asherah theology? Okay. Baal was the God, was believed to be the God of rain, thunderstorms, and dew. And in an agricultural-based economy, that's a big deal. Asherah was believed to be the goddess who was the mother of Baal and also his mistress, kind of gross. Now, the Israelites, they had incorporated her into their uh, worship, and the God of the Bible is Yahweh, and, and, and Asherah was believed to kind of be the, okay, the goddess of heaven and the consort of Yahweh. In their view, she had become a kind of divine huchimama, and I say that in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way, but let's be clear, this was no laughing matter. Because when you sexualize the divine, you will create nothing short of a kind of pornography culture. And the old biblical word for that is debauchery. And if that's not a word you use a lot, think of it like this. It is unrestrained moral choices that lead to pervasive regret. And when you sexualize your theology, when you sexualize your worldview, when you have a hypersexualized view of reality, it always leads to a kind of sex without boundaries ethic. And as we see how God responds to that intentionally and intensely and how God does not tolerate that, it's not because God is anti-fun. God is not anti-horizontal fun. But that's a different message. And there are kids in the room and I didn't give anybody a warning. So... God is holy, which means he is wholly opposed 
to a sex without boundary kind of ethic. And again, it's not because he's a prude. It's because it always, 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 always leads to hurt and away from human flourishing. A sex without boundaries kind of ethic always leads away from the kind of fulfillment that we want. And when you take that, that kind of ethic, and you combine it with religion, it always results in abuse and exploitation. And that'll hurt everybody. But the people that it hurts the most are the most vulnerable. And so Baal and Asherah worship not only led the people into idolatry, it led them to sacrifice their children. And as we look at these particular events of history and we see how God responds, he is not overreacting. So just a reminder, this message series is all about hope and encouragement. Am I hitting the mark? <laughs> we feeling good? All right. Hang with me. I promise it's coming. Let's do a quick review. Baal and Asherah. Baal was believed to be the god of rain, storms, and dew. Big deal in an agricultural-based economy. If there was Baal worship today, Baal would be the god of the stock market. Asherah, let's just say she was the goddess of fertility. And the people of Israel turned to these idols to secure a strong economy and a morally free lifestyle without restriction. Strong economy and a morally free lifestyle without restriction. Kind of sounds like their culture isn't very different from our culture today. Another key detail you need to know about to keep all of this going Ahab and Jezebel systematically hunted down and assassinated prophets of God who told the truth and called the people to repent. And it's into this, it's into this point in history that the prophet Elijah steps onto the scene. And what you need to know is he is a man who had the kind of trust and faith in God that he would follow him wherever he led, and he had the kind of courage to speak truth to power. And he went before King Ahab and he said, listen, your gods are a joke. They're a figment of your imagination. And my God's gonna prove it. First Kings 17 says this, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain. Baal is the God of what? Rain, thunderstorms, and dew. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Ahab, your gods have no power. My God has all the power. Mic drop. Then he goes into hiding, so, you know, as not to be murdered. And there's no rain for three years. Three and a half years later, Elijah shows up again, has a meeting with Ahab to pick a fight. He says, let's have a God contest. These are the rules. Let's invite everyone to come to Mount Carmel, that's a coastal mountain in northern Israel, and it was believed to be the home of Baal. And let's set up altars with a sacrificed bull on, on both altars. And the prophets of Baal, they can pray that their God would send down fire to consume the sacrifice. Elijah, he's gonna pray to his God to do the same thing. And whichever one answered was the real God, it would be the one whom everyone would follow. And Ahab agreed. And for all the bad things that we could say about Ahab, he at the very least put his money where his mouth is. And so all the people came. I mean, I imagine that there were thousands of people. There were 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. I mean, it's a massive crowd. And they're all there. And the anticipation and the anxiety is 
thick. And this is where Elijah steps up and he puts his courage and his faith on display. It says, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, well, follow him. You know what you'll never read in the Bible? Blind faith. You'll never read, just believe. Follow what's true. Follow what's real. Follow the evidence. And as Elijah kicked this off, the prophets of Baal got to work and they started moaning and chanting and, and praying. And you know what happened? Nothing. And so Elijah, he kind of starts to taunt him. I think we'd be friends. He's sarcastic. He's making fun of him. He's like, well, maybe your God's on a trip. Maybe he can't hear you. Speak louder. And even though his, their God is not raining down fire, it doesn't stop Elijah from burning these dudes. And I think he'd be a great youth pastor. Elijah says to him, maybe your God's using the bathroom. He's busy right now. And so he's laughing, he's joking, but the mood starts to change because the people look at these prophets and they begin to think, you guys are frauds. So they crank up the heat and they crank up the intensity and they pull out knives and swords and they start cutting themselves and stabbing themselves to prove the intensity of their devotion. And that goes on for hours. And Elijah steps up and says, settle down, boys. Just take a break. You need a break. Let me go. And so Elijah, he sets up the altar. He throws the, the pieces of the sacrifice bull on the altar. And then he does something super weird. He calls for giant jars of water, and he just dumps water all over it. And I imagine people were a bit not only confused but angry. Hey, we're in the middle of a drought, bro, and you are wasting a precious resource. And then he dug a trench all the way around the altar and he called for more water and just saturated, drenched all of it and even filled up the ditch around the altar with water. And this is where we pick up in 1 Kings 18. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What else do you do other than worship? when you know that God is real? What other response is there than to worship and to obey? If you were here last week, you remember this, when you receive friendship from the Lord, you break friendship with his rivals. And at this point, under the direction of Elijah, the people turned on all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they rounded them up, and they executed them. And this is where some people say, this is where I, I recoil at the Old Testament because it feels wrong and that feels barbaric. And so when I ask you to lean in a little bit by, let's go back in time to last week. Let's go back in time to last week when our eyes were still wet with tears as we watched what happened in Uvalde, Texas. And can we choose to remember that in the way that we felt? 
And also remember that these prophets were responsible for leading the people to kill their kids as a part of worship. Our God would be a monster if he did not judge that. And so their judgment was final and it was appropriate. As we look at the events that happened here in 1 Kings 18, it would be understandable, probably be normal and natural to kind of be distracted and and consumed with all the dramatic things that happened. But the most extraordinary thing is not that fire fell from the sky. If these people were devoted to depraved idol practices, there was no need to define the relationship. There were no subtle clues to pick up on. They had made it clear, God, we're not with you anymore. We've given our affection and our allegiance to these other idols. And in a firestorm of affirmation, God lets it be known, I'm still for you. Remember what Elijah prayed? He said, answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know, will know what? That you are the Lord God, and you are turning their hearts back again. This is an extraordinary expression of grace. God said, I still want you. I'm still for you. And so if you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. No amount of rebellion can outmatch the relentlessness of God's grace. That some of us need this to crack our armor and to sink deep into our hearts and minds. And though they didn't deserve it, they received acceptance and forgiveness. Though they casually rejected God, he actively pursued them. And I want to talk to to those of us in the room who feel like we have things in our past that we have to hide from. I want to talk to those in the room or or watching online who feel the need to define ourselves by accomplishment, to define ourselves by achievement, to be defined by a status that we've earned. I want to talk to anybody in here who feels the pressure to perform and to be seen as enough. I want to talk to those who've got sins, you've got moral regrets in your past, and it's hard enough for you to look at. But if they became exposed, if they became known, you would feel unacceptable. When you are hiding, when you're ashamed, when you feel like you are not enough, when you have regret, and when you are afraid of rejection, look up. Your heavenly Father has set his heart on you. Will you let your heart be set on him? Now, this is when I think the encouragement really kind of takes off. And not only did God ignite repentance by dropping fire from the sky, he brought renewal with much needed rain. This is the point where Elijah kneels down and prays, God, would you bring rain again? And God responds with an epic storm. And this is where, as I'm reading, I would think, you know, kind of the story's over and the party begins. Like if this were a movie, roll credits and we all get up and go home. That's what I expect as I'm reading 1 Kings. But either the next day or a couple of days after that, Queen Jezebel is not happy. And she decides to issue a death warrant 
for Elijah, and she makes it known, we're coming for you, and we're going to kill you. And based on the way Elijah's been acting this whole time and all the things that God has done, I'm expecting from Elijah some sort of sarcastic defiance, something kind of like this. Bring it on. What do you got? Bring it. Let's read. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, and while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Anybody ever pray a prayer like that? God, I'm done. I can't take these people anymore. I can't deal with this stress anymore. I quit. I'm done. And then he lays down and takes an angry nap. Anybody here ever take an angry nap? I live with somebody who sometimes takes an angry nap. <laughs> if you were to have a genuine Elijah moment, and you just prayed your I'm done prayer, I can't take it anymore prayer, what would it sound like? What would be in your prayer? And if you had that unfiltered moment where you just let it all out, how do you think God would respond to that? So there he is, taking an angry nap. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and he went back to sleep again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Who saw that coming? They wake up, and there's this charcuterie board. There's, <laughs> there's fresh bread, and I'm sure, I think there was butter, too. The guy's not mad. He's not angry. He's not even disappointed. Have a snack. And what I'm going to say next, I'm going to invite you to write this down. It's not theological. It might be profound. It's not theological. Sometimes a good cook is better than a good counselor. Every grandma knows this. Anybody in here know what it's like to feel full of anxiety because somebody who you care about is getting whooped by life? You're full of anxiety. They're in the depth of grief, grief, and you just don't know what to say, and you're trying to say it, and it just feels wrong, and it comes out wrong. You know what I'm talking about? Just bring them some food. They don't need you to say the right thing. What they need isn't conversation. What they need is physical comfort that you can bring. And this scene in Elijah's life exposes that it is possible to be a genuine believer of God and be suicidally depressed. And sometimes the Bible is a bit more honest than we actually want it to be. And I don't know about you, but there's this temptation to want to gloss over the, the defects, the shortcomings, the fatigue, the failure, the whatever, and the people that I look up to and the leaders that I follow but that's not how the Bible is. It puts the truth stark and naked on full display. And we want to believe 
the people who believe the right things and do the right things are not pulled down by this kind of stuff. We want to believe the people who believe the right things and who do the right things don't succumb to doubt, anxiety, exhaustion, and depression. But it's in those moments that the grace of God shines incredibly bright. God doesn't treat fatigue like failure. And even when we do fail, he responds with friendship. I don't know who said it first. It was either General Patton or Coach Vince Lombardi, but they're both remembered for saying this, fatigue makes cowards of us all. God doesn't give us perfect models and perfect examples. But we do have models and we do have examples who are perfect to display God's amazing fatigue-proof grace. I don't know. What do you think? I think God would have been justified to look down at Elijah and say, are you kidding me? Get up, you big baby. What else do I got to do? He didn't do that. He gave Elijah what he needed, even if what Elijah needed was better than what Elijah deserved. And so Elijah gets up, follows the instructions he's given, and he takes a trip to a mountain called Mount Horeb, and he is uh, kind of holed up in a cave there. The next chapter, this is what we read. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? What's going on? So Elijah responded. Let me see if I can get this right. <laughs> and then Mary's house for the Lord God Almighty. <laughs> and the Israelites have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword, and I'm the only one left there trying to kill me too. How does God respond? It says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. What's going on? And God is showing Elijah, I've got the power. You don't need to be afraid. But God does not relate to us through his power. He relates to us in such a way that we are drawn in, not beaten down. He relates to us through his love and gentleness. After the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. And he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice of the Lord said to him, what are you doing here? Elijah, what's going on? So this is how Elijah responded. Been really zealous for you. Been working really hard. Nobody listens. Tore down the altars and they're killing everybody. Now they're trying to kill me too and I'm scared. And I can't even face you. 
Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Anoint Jehu, Nimshi king over Israel. You don't have to worry about Ahab. You don't have to worry about Jezebel. I'm going to take care of that. And anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. It's interesting to me that God does not respond with a pep talk. Elijah just vomits out his depression, his sadness, his exhaustion. And God says, okay, you can be done. It's all right. I've just got three really simple things for you to do to wrap it up. The first two, to anoint a couple of kings. And one of them is a king from a totally different country. What's the deal with that? It seems weird. I think it was God's way of saying to Elijah, I'm sovereign over everything. I'm the authority over it all. I'm in charge of it all. Elijah, your confidence and anxiety should not rise and fall based on who runs a government. Isn't the Bible irrelevant? Like, who needs to hear that anymore? Your confidence should not rise and fall. Your anxiety should not rise and fall based on who runs a government. We've got politicians in our church who work at the state level. We've got people who work in the school board system here at the local level. And your jobs have never been harder. I so appreciate and respect what you do. Politics and serving and government, these things are important and we should care and we should be involved. But if we are in Christ, if this is the God we trust, our confidence and our anxiety should never rise and fall based on who runs a government. Third thing. He says, go and anoint this next guy to be prophet. Not only was God a friend to Elijah, he gave a friend to Elijah. He gave him a partner in ministry, and he started a succession plan that allowed Elijah to retire and be done. I just want us to marvel, just marvel at the kindness of God. When you're exhausted, when you're worn out, when you're burnt out and overcooked and ready to give up, look up. How do you do that? We don't want it to be cliche. This entire series is going to be about how we do exactly that. But many times, maybe every time, it's going to begin with turning to God in prayer. I used to have a college professor who said this, God's love often has human fingerprints on it. Yesterday, I got to spend time with a small group uh, from our church. Uh, these are folks who are all basically retired, and they've been together since they were in their 20s. And we were having lunch together. They just went around the, the room and, and talked about how important their group was and how God has brought healing and comfort to their lives through each other and how they've loved each other. Whether we gather together large or small, it is an opportunity to experience the love and the comfort of God as we look up together. 